the kindly Mr. Waller invites Smith and Mike to hear him speak in the park on Sunday. Now what could possibly go wrong? P.G. Woodhouse, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our financial supporters. We couldn't do this without you. Your monthly donations help to give us a bed of insulation we can count on from month to month. It really helps us out. And in case you've forgotten, a $5 donation gets you an $8 coupon code for any audiobook in the store. Thank you so much for stepping up and helping to keep us going strong. Our website is classictalesaudiobooks.com. App users who absolutely need to get their Halloween monster fix can hear a new recording of The Horla by Guy de Maupassant in the special features area for this week's episode. Tap the box that looks like a present. And as pandemic fatigue continues to gnaw at our bones, we have several long-form novels as well as several short stories available for free to help us through these trying times. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and check out our free category. Feel free to pick up whatever you like and tell your friends. Now for our personal moment. Have you ever tried using the charcoal toothpaste? It's supposed to whiten teeth naturally, but if anything happens, it's so gradual that I can't see it. Being a coffee drinker, I figured it's time to attend to the teeth whitening thing. And at night, it seems to be working great. Then in the morning, it seems like nothing is happening. I asked Scylla and Goldie if they saw a change, and they said yes. They saw a big difference, so results are mixed. Brushing with the black foam is a new experience. White towels don't stay white for very long. I found a toothbrush with charcoal-infused bristles, which is good, because the bristles are turning gray anyway. We'll see how another tube works and reassess. Anyway, charcoal toothpaste, that's our personal moment. Well, something amazing doesn't happen every week. You just gotta expect that sometimes. And now, Smith in the City, part four of six, by P.G. Woodhouse. Chapter 13. Mike is Moved On This episode may be said to have concluded the first act of the commercial drama, in which Mike and Smith had been cast for leading parts, and as usually happens after the end of an act, there was a lull for a while until things began to work up towards another climax. Mike, as day succeeded day, began to grow accustomed to the life of the bank, and to find that it had its pleasant side after all. Whenever a number of people are working at the same thing, even though that thing is not, perhaps, what they would have chosen as an object in life, if left to themselves, there is bound to exist an atmosphere of good fellowship, something akin to, though a hundred times weaker than, the public school spirit. Such a community lacks the main motive of the public school spirit, which is pride in the school and its achievements. Nobody can be proud of the achievements of a bank. When the business of arranging a new Japanese loan was given to the new Asiatic bank, its employees did not stand on stools and cheer. On the contrary, they thought of the extra work it would involve, and they cursed a good deal, though there was no denying that it was a big thing for the bank not unlike winning the Ashburton would be to a school. There is a cold impersonality about a bank. A school is a living thing. Setting aside this important difference, there was a good deal of the public school about the new Asiatic bank. The heads of departments were not quite so autocratic as masters, and one was treated more on a grown-up scale as man-to-man. But nevertheless there remained a distinct flavour of a school republic. 
Most of the men in the bank, with the exception of certain hard-headed Scotch youths, drafted in from other establishments in the city, were old public school men. Mike found two old Rykinians in the first week. Neither was well known to him. They had left in his second year in the team. But it was pleasant to have them about, and to feel that they had been educated at the right place. As far as Mike's personal comfort went, the presence of these two Rykinians was very much for the good. Both of them knew all about his cricket, and they spread the news. The new Asiatic bank, like most London banks, was keen on sport, and happened to possess a cricket team, which could make a good game with most of the second-rank clubs. The disappearance to the east of two of the best bats of the previous season caused Mike's advent to be hailed with a good deal of enthusiasm. Mike was a county man. He had only played once for his county, it was true, but that did not matter. He had passed the barrier which separates the second-class bat from the first class, and the bank welcomed him with awe. County men did not come their way every day. Mike did not like being in the bank, considered in the light of a career, but he bore no grudge against the inmates of the bank, such as he had borne against the inmates of Sedley. He had looked on the latter as bound up with the school, and consequently enemies. His fellow workers in the bank he regarded as companions in misfortune. They were all in the same boat together. There were men from Tunbridge, Dulwich, Bedford, St. Paul's, and a dozen other schools. One or two of them he knew by repute from the pages of wisdom. Bannister, his cheerful predecessor in the postage department, was the Bannister, he recollected now, who had played for Geddington against Riken in his second year in the Riken team. Monroe, the big man in the fixed deposits, he remembered as the leader of the Ripton pack. Every day brought fresh discoveries of this sort, and each made Mike more reconciled to his lot. They were a pleasant set of fellows in the new Asiatic bank, and but for the dreary outlook which the future held, for Mike, unlike most of his fellow workers, was not attracted by the idea of a life in the East, he would have been very fairly content. The hostility of Mr. Bickersdyke was a slight drawback. Smith had developed a habit of taking Mike with him to the club of an evening, and this did not do anything towards wiping out of the manager's mind the recollection of his former passage of arms with the old Rykinian. The glass remaining set fair, as far as Mr. Rossiter's approval was concerned, Mike was enabled to keep off the managerial carpet to a great extent, but twice, when he posted letters without going through the preliminary formality of stamping them, Mr. Bickersdyke had opportunities of which he availed himself. But for these incidents, life was fairly enjoyable. Owing to Smith's benevolent efforts, the postage department became quite a happy family, and ex-occupants of the postage desk, a banister especially, were amazed at the change that had come over Mr. Rossiter. He no longer darted from his lair like a pouncing panther, to report his subordinates to the manager seemed now to be a lost art with him. The sight of Smith and Mr. Rossiter proceeding high and disposedly to a mutual lunch became quite common, and ceased to excite remark. By kindness, said Smith to Mike, after one of these expeditions, by tact and kindness. That is how it is done. I do not despair of training Comrade Rossiter one of these days to jump through paper hoops." so that altogether Mike's life in the bank had become very fairly pleasant. Out of office hours he enjoyed himself hugely. London was strange to him, and with Smith as a companion, he extracted a vast deal of entertainment from it. Smith was not unacquainted with the West End, and he proved an excellent guide. At first Mike expostulated with unfailing regularity at the other's habit of paying for everything— but Smith waved aside all objections with languid firmness. "'I need you, Comrade Jackson,' he said, when Mike lodged a protest on finding himself bound for the stalls for the second night in succession. "'We must stick together. As my confidential secretary and adviser, your place is by my side. 
Who knows but that between the acts tonight I may not be seized with some luminous thought. Could I utter this to my next-door neighbor, or the program girl? Stand by me, Comrade Jackson, or we are undone. So Mike stood by him. By this time Mike had grown so used to his work that he could tell to within five minutes when a rush would come, and he was able to spend a good deal of his time reading a surreptitious novel behind a pile of ledgers, or down in the tea-room. The new Asiatic bank supplied tea to its employees. In quality it was bad, and the bread and butter associated with it was worse, but it had the merit of giving one an excuse for being away from one's desk. There were large printed notices all over the tea-room, which was in the basement, informing gentlemen that they were only allowed ten minutes for tea. But one took just as long as one thought the head of one's department would stand, from twenty-five minutes to an hour and a quarter. This state of things was too good to last. Towards the beginning of the new year a new man arrived, and Mike was moved on to another department. Chapter 14 Mr. Waller Appears in a New Light The department into which Mike was sent was the cash, or, to be more exact, that section of it which was known as paying cashier. The important task of shooting doubloons across the counter did not belong to Mike himself, but to Mr. Waller. Mike's work was less ostentatious, and was performed with pen, ink, and ledgers in the background. Occasionally, when Mr. Waller was out at lunch, Mike had to act as substitute for him and cash checks, but Mr. Waller always went out at a slack time, when few customers came in, and Mike seldom had any very startling sum to hand over. He enjoyed being in the cash department. He liked Mr. Waller. The work was easy, and when he did happen to make mistakes, they were corrected patiently by the grey-bearded one, and not used as levers for boosting him into the presence of Mr. Bickersdyke, as they might have been in some departments. The cashier seemed to have taken a fancy to Mike, and Mike, as was usually the way with him when people went out of their way to be friendly, was at his best. Mike, at his ease and unsuspicious of hostile intentions, was a different person from Mike with his prickles out. Smith, meanwhile, was not enjoying himself. It was an unheard-of thing, he said, depriving a man of his confidential secretary without so much as asking his leave. It has caused me the greatest inconvenience, he told Mike, drifting round in a melancholy way to the cash department during a slack spell one afternoon. I miss you at every turn. Your keen intelligence and ready sympathy were invaluable to me. Now where am I? In the cart, I evolved a slightly bright thought on life just now. There was nobody to tell it to except the new man. I told it him, and the fool gaped. I tell you, Comrade Jackson, I feel like some lion that has been robbed of its cub. I feel as Marshall would feel if they took Snellgrove away from him, or as Peace might if he awoke one morning to find plenty gone. Comrade Rossiter does his best— we still talk brokenly about Manchester United. They got routed in the first round of the cup yesterday, and Comrade Rossiter is wearing black. But it is not the same. I try work, but that is no good either. From ledger to ledger they hurry me to stifle my regret. And when they win a smile from me, they think that I forget. But I don't. I am a broken man. That new exhibit they've got in your place— is about as near to the extreme edge as anything I've ever seen. One of nature's blighters. Well, well, I must away. Comrade Rossiter awaits me. Mike's successor, a youth of the name of Bristow, was causing Smith a great deal of pensive melancholy. His worst defect, which he could not help, was that he was not Mike. His others, which he could, were numerous. His clothes were cut in a way that harrowed Smith's sensitive soul every time he looked at them. The fact that he wore detachable cuffs, which he took off on beginning work and stacked in a glistening pile on the desk in front of him, 
was no proof of innate viciousness of disposition, but it prejudiced the old Etonian against him. It was part of Smith's philosophy that a man who wore detachable cuffs had passed beyond the limit of human toleration. In addition, Bristow wore a small black moustache and a ring, and that, as Smith informed Mike, put the lid on it. Mike would sometimes stroll round to the postage department to listen to the conversations between the two. Bristow was always friendliness itself. He habitually addressed Smith as Smithy, a fact which entertained Mike greatly, but did not seem to amuse Smith to any overwhelming extent. On the other hand, when, as he generally did, he called Mike Mr. Cricketer, the humour of the thing appeared to elude Mike, though the mode of address always drew from Smith a pale, wan smile, as of a broken heart made cheerful against its own inclination. The net result of the coming of Bristow was that Smith spent most of his time, when not actually oppressed by a rush of work, in the precincts of the cash department, talking to Mike and Mr. Waller. The latter did not seem to share the dislike common among the other heads of departments of seeing his subordinates receiving visitors. Unless the work was really heavy, in which case a mild remonstrance escaped him, he offered no objection to Mike being at home to Smith. It was this tolerance which sometimes got him into trouble with Mr. Bickersdyke. The manager did not often perambulate the office, but he did occasionally, and the interview which ensued upon his finding Hutchinson, the underling in the cash department at the time, with his stool tilted comfortably against the wall, reading the sporting news from a pink paper to a friend from the outward bills department, who lay luxuriously on the floor beside him, did not rank among Mr. Waller's pleasantest memories. But Mr. Waller was too soft-hearted to interfere with his assistance unless it was absolutely necessary. The truth of the matter was that the new Asiatic bank was overstaffed. There were too many men for the work. The London branch of the bank was really only a nursery. New men were constantly wanted in the eastern branches, so they had to be put into the London branch to learn the business, whether there was any work for them to do or not. It was after one of these visits of Smith's that Mr. Waller displayed a new and unsuspected side to his character. Smith had come round in a state of some depression to discuss Bristow, as usual. Bristow, it seemed, had come to the bank that morning in a fancy waistcoat of so emphatic a colour scheme that Smith stoutly refused to sit in the same department with it. "'What with comrades Bristow and Bickersdyke combined,' said Smith plaintively, "'the work is becoming too hard for me. "'The whisper is beginning to circulate. "'Smith's number is up. "'As a reformer, he is merely among those present. "'He is losing his dash. "'But what can I do? "'I cannot keep an eye on both of them at the same time.' The moment I concentrate myself on Comrade Bickersdyke for a brief spell, and seem to be doing him a bit of good, what happens? Why, Comrade Bristow sneaks off and buys a sort of woollen sunset. I saw the thing unexpectedly. I tell you, I was shaken. It is the suddenness of that waistcoat which hits you. It's discouraging, this sort of thing. I try always to think well of my fellow man. As an energetic socialist— I do my best to see the good that is in him, but it's hard. Comrade Bristow's the most striking argument against the equality of man I've ever come across. Mr. Waller intervened at this point. I think you must really let Jackson go on with his work, Smith, he said. There seems to be too much talking. My besetting sin, said Smith sadly. Well, well. I will go back and do my best to face it, but it's a tough job. He tottered wearily away in the direction of the postage department. Oh, Jackson, said Mr. Waller, will you kindly take my place for a few minutes? I must go round and see the inward bills about something. I shall be back very soon. Mike was becoming accustomed to deputizing for the cashier for short spaces of time. It generally happened— that he had to do so once or twice a day. Strictly speaking, perhaps, 
Mr. Waller was wrong to leave such an important task as the actual cashing of checks to an inexperienced person of Mike's standing. But the new Asiatic bank differed from most banks, in that there was not a great deal of cross-counter work. People came in fairly frequently to cash checks of two or three pounds, but it was rare that any very large dealings took place. Having completed his business with the inward bills, Mr. Waller made his way back by a circuitous route, taking in the postage desk. He found Smith with a pale, set face, inscribing figures in a ledger. The old Etonian greeted him with the faint smile of a persecuted saint, who is determined to be cheerful even at the stake. "'Comrade Bristow,' he said. "'Hello, Smithy,' said the other, turning. Smith sadly directed Mr. Waller's attention to the waistcoat, which was certainly definite in its colouring. "'Nothing,' said Smith. "'I only wanted to look at you. "'A funny ass,' said Bristow, resuming his work. Smith glanced at Mr. Waller, as who should say, "'See what I have to put up with?' and yet I do not give way. Oh, uh, Smith, said Mr. Waller, when you were talking to Jackson just now, say no more, said Smith, it shall not occur again. Why should I dislocate the work of your department in my efforts to win a sympathetic word? I will bear Comrade Bristow like a man here. After all, there are worse things at the zoo. No, no, said Mr. Waller hastily. I did not mean that. By all means, pay us a visit now and then, if it does not interfere with your own work. But I noticed just now that you spoke to Bristow as Comrade Bristow. It is too true, said Smith. I must correct myself of the habit. He will be getting above himself. And when you were speaking to Jackson, you spoke of yourself as a socialist. Socialism is the passion of my life, said Smith. Mr. Waller's face grew animated. He stammered in his eagerness. "'I am delighted,' he said. "'Really, I am delighted. I also—' "'A fellow worker in the cause?' said Smith. Uh, "'Exactly.' Smith extended his hand gravely. Mr. Waller shook it with enthusiasm. "'I have never liked to speak of it to anybody in the office,' said Mr. Waller. "'but I, too, am heart and soul in the movement.' "'Yours for the revolution?' said Smith. "'Just so, just so, exactly. "'I was wondering. "'The fact is I am in the habit of speaking on Sundays in the open air, "'and Hyde Park? No, no, Clapham Common. "'It is uh, handier for me where I live. "'Now, as you are interested in the movement, "'I was thinking that perhaps you might care to— "'Come and hear me speak next Sunday. "'Of course, if you have nothing better to do, "'I should like to excessively,' said Smith. "'Excellent. Bring Jackson with you, "'and both of you come to supper afterwards, if you will.' "'Thanks very much. "'Perhaps you would speak yourself.' "'No,' said Smith. "'No, I think not. "'My socialism is rather of the practical sort. "'I seldom speak.' "'but it would be a treat to listen to you. "'What uh, type of oratory is yours?' "'Oh, well,' said Mr. Waller, "'pulling nervously at his beard. "'Of course, I... "'Well, I am perhaps a little bitter. "'Yes, yes, a little mordant and ironical. "'You would be,' agreed Smith. "'I shall look forward to Sunday with every fibre quivering, "'and Comrade Jackson shall be at my side. "'Excellent!' said Mr. Waller. I will go and tell him now. Chapter 15 Stirring Times on the Common The first thing to do, said Smith, is to ascertain that such a place as Clapham Common really exists. One has heard of it, of course, but has its existence ever been proved? I think not. Having accomplished that, we must then try to find out how to get to it. I should say at a venture that it would necessitate a sea voyage. On the other hand, Comrade Waller, who is a native of the spot, seems to find no difficulty in rolling to the office every morning. Therefore, 
You follow me, Jackson? It must be in England. In that case, we will take a taximeter cab and go out into the unknown, hand in hand, trusting to luck. I expect you could get there by tram, said Mike. Smith suppressed a slight shudder. I fear, Comrade Jackson, he said, that the old noblesse oblige traditions of the Smiths would not allow me to do that. No, we will stroll gently after a light lunch to Trafalgar Square and hail a taxi. Beastly expensive, but with what an object! Can any expenditure be called excessive, which enables us to hear Comrade Waller being mordant and ironical at the other end? It's a rum business, said Mike. I hope the Dickens he won't mix us up in it. We should look frightful fools. I may possibly say a few words, said Smith carelessly, if the spirit moves me. Who am I that I should deny people a simple pleasure? Mike looked alarmed. Look here, he said. I say, if you are going to play the goat, for goodness sake, don't go lugging me into it. I've got heaps of troubles without that. Smith waved the objection aside. You, he said, will be one of the large and, I hope, interested audience, nothing more. But it is quite possible that the spirit may not move me. I may not feel inspired to speak. I am not one of those who love speaking for speaking's sake. If I have no message for the many-headed, I shall remain silent. Then I hope that Dickens you won't have, said Mike. Of all things, he hated most being conspicuous before a crowd, except at cricket, which was a different thing, and he had an uneasy feeling that Smith would rather like it than otherwise. We shall see, said Smith absently. Of course, if in the vein, I might do something big in the way of oratory. I am a plain, blunt man, but I feel convinced— that given the opportunity I should haul up my slacks to some effect. But, well, we shall see, we shall see. And with this ghastly state of doubt, Mike had to be content. It was with feelings of apprehension that he accompanied Smith from the flat to Trafalgar Square in search of a cab which should convey them to Clapham Common. They were to meet Mr. Waller at the edge of the common nearest the old town of Clapham. On the journey down, Smith was inclined to be debonair. Mike, on the other hand, was silent and apprehensive. He knew enough of Smith to know that, if half an opportunity were offered him, he would extract entertainment from this affair after his own fashion, and then the odds were that he himself would be dragged into it. Perhaps, his scalp bristled at the mere idea, he would even be let in for a speech. This grisly thought had hardly come into his head when Smith spoke. "'I'm not half sure,' he said thoughtfully. "'I shan't call on you for a speech, Comrade Jackson.' "'Look here, Smith,' began Mike agitatedly. "'I don't know. I think your solid, incisive style would rather go down with the masses. However, we shall see, we shall see.' Mike reached the common in a state of nervous collapse. Mr. Waller was waiting for them by the railings near the pond. The apostle of the revolution was clad soberly in black, except for a tie of vivid crimson. His eyes shone with the light of enthusiasm, vastly different from the mild glow of amiability which they exhibited for six days in every week. The man was transformed. "'Here you are,' he said. "'Here you are. Excellent. You are in good time.' Comrades Wetherspoon and Preble have already begun to speak. I shall commence now that you have come. This is the way, over by these trees. They made their way towards a small clump of trees, near which a fair-sized crowd had already begun to collect. Evidently listening to the speakers was one of Clapham's fashionable Sunday amusements. Mr. Waller talked and gesticulated incessantly as he walked. Smith's demeanour was perhaps a shade patronising. But he displayed interest. Mike proceeded to the meeting with the air of an about-to-be-washed dog. He was loathing the whole business with a heartiness worthy of a better cause. Somehow he felt he was going to be made to look a fool before the afternoon was over. 
but he registered a vow that nothing should drag him on to the small platform which had been erected for the benefit of the speaker. As they drew nearer, the voices of comrades Witherspoon and Preble became more audible. They had been audible all the time, very much so, but now they grew in volume. Comrade Witherspoon was a tall, thin man with side-whiskers and a high voice. He scattered his H's as a fountain its sprays in a strong wind. He was very earnest. Comrade Preble was earnest, too, perhaps even more so than Comrade Witherspoon. He was handicapped to some extent, however, by not having a palate. This gave to his profoundest thoughts a certain weirdness, as if they had been uttered in an unknown tongue. The crowd was thickest around his platform. The grown-up section plainly regarded him as a comedian, pure and simple, and roared with happy laughter when he urged them to march upon Park Lane and loot the same without mercy or scruple. The children were more doubtful. Several had broken down and been led away in tears. When Mr. Waller got up to speak on platform number three, his audience consisted at first only of Smith, Mike, and a fox terrier. Gradually, however, he attracted others. After wavering for a while, the crowd finally decided that he was worth hearing. He had a method of his own. Lacking the natural gifts which marked Comrade Preble out as an entertainer, he made up for this by his activity. Where his colleagues stood comparatively still, Mr. Waller behaved with a vivacity generally supposed to belong only to peas on shovels and cats on hot bricks. He crouched to denounce the House of Lords. He bounded from side to side while dissecting the methods of the plutocrats. During an impassioned onslaught on the monarchial system, he stood on one leg and hopped. This was more the sort of thing the crowd had come to see. Comrade Weatherspoon found himself deserted, and even Comrade Preble's shortcomings in the way of palate were insufficient to keep his flock together. The entire strength of the audience gathered in front of the third platform. Mike, separated from Smith by the movement of the crowd, listened with a growing depression. That feeling which attacks a sensitive person sometimes at the theatre, when somebody is making himself ridiculous on the stage. The illogical feeling that it is he, and not the actor, who is floundering, had come over him in a wave. He liked Mr. Waller, and it made his gorge rise to see him exposing himself to the jeers of a crowd. The fact that Mr. Waller himself did not know that they were jeers, but mistook them for applause, made it no better. Mike felt vaguely furious. His indignation began to take a more personal shape when the speaker, branching off from the main subject of socialism, began to touch on temperance. There was no particular reason why Mr. Waller should have introduced the subject of temperance, except that he happened to be an enthusiast. He linked it on to his remarks on socialism by attributing the lethargy of the masses to their fondness for alcohol, and the crowd, which had been inclined rather to pat itself on the back during the assaults on rank and property, finding itself assailed in its turn, resented it. They were there to listen to speakers telling them that they were the finest fellows on earth, not pointing out their little failings to them. The feeling of the meeting became hostile, the jeers grew more frequent and less good-tempered. Comrade Waller means well, said a voice in Mike's ear, but if he shoots it at them like this much more, there'll be a bit of an imbroglio. Look here, Smith, said Mike quickly. Can't we stop him? These chaps are getting fed up, and they look bargies enough to do anything. They'll be going for him or something soon. How can we switch off the flow? I don't see. The man has wound up. He means to get it off his chest if it snows. I feel we are by way of being in the soup once more, Comrade Jackson. We can only sit tight and look on. The crowd was becoming more threatening every minute. A group of young men of the loafer class who stood near Mike were especially fertile in comment. Smith's eyes were on the speaker, but Mike was watching this group closely. Suddenly he saw one of them, a thick-set youth wearing a cloth cap and no collar, 
stoop. When he rose again, there was a stone in his hand. The sight acted on Mike like a spur. Vague rage against nobody in particular had been simmering in him for half an hour. Now it concentrated itself on the cloth-capped one. Mr. Waller paused momentarily before renewing his harangue. The man in the cloth cap raised his hand. There was a swirl in the crowd, and the first thing that Smith saw as he turned was Mike seizing the would-be marksman round the neck and hurling him to the ground, after the manner of a four-wooded football tackling an opponent during a line-out from touch. There is one thing which will always distract the attention of a crowd from any speaker— and that is a dispute between two of its units. Mr. Waller's views on temperance were forgotten in an instant. The audience surged round Mike and his opponent. The latter had scrambled to his feet now, and was looking round for his assailant. "'That's him, Bill!' cried eager voices, indicating Mike. "'He's a bloke what hit you, Bill!' said others, more precise in detail. Bill advanced on Mike in a sidelong, crab-like manner. "'Who are you, I should like to know?' said Bill. Mike, rightly holding that this was merely a rhetorical question, and that Bill had no real thirst for information as to his family history, made no reply. Or rather, the reply he made was not verbal. He waited till his questioner was within range, and then hit him in the eye. A reply far more satisfactory, if not to Bill himself, at any rate to the interested onlookers, than any flow of words. A contented sigh went up from the crowd. Their Sunday afternoon was going to be spent just as they considered Sunday afternoons should be spent. Give us your coat, said Smith briskly, and try to get it over quick. Don't go in for any fancy sparring. Switch it on, all you know, from the start. I'll keep a thoughtful eye open to see that none of his friends and relations join in. Outwardly, Smith was unruffled, but inwardly he was not feeling so composed. An ordinary turn-up before an impartial crowd, which could be relied upon to preserve the etiquette of these matters, was one thing. As regards the actual little dispute with the cloth-capped Bill, he felt that he could rely on Mike to handle it satisfactorily. But there was no knowing how long the crowd would be content to remain mere spectators— there was no doubt which way its sympathies lay. Bill, now stripped of his coat and sketching out in a hoarse voice a scenario of what he intended to do, knocking Mike down and stamping him into the mud was one of the milder feats he promised to perform for the entertainment of an indulgent audience, was plainly the popular favourite. Smith, though he did not show it, was more than a little apprehensive. Mike, having more to occupy his mind in the immediate present, was not anxious concerning the future. He had the great advantage over Smith of having lost his temper. Smith could look on the situation as a whole, and count the risks and possibilities. Mike could only see Bill shuffling towards him with his head down and shoulders bunched. "'Go it, Bill!' said someone. "'Play up the arsenal!' urged a voice on the outskirts of the crowd. A chorus of encouragement from kind friends in front. Step up, Bill! And Bill stepped. Chapter 16 Further Developments Bill, surname unknown, was not one of your ultra-scientific fighters. He did not favour the American crouch and the artistic feint. He had a style wholly his own. It seemed to have been modelled partly on a tortoise and partly on a windmill. His head he appeared to be trying to conceal between his shoulders, and he whirled his arms alternately in circular sweeps. Mike, on the other hand, stood upright and hit straight, with the result that he hurt his knuckles very much on his opponent's skull without seeming to disturb the latter to any great extent. In the process, he received one of the windmill swings on the left ear. The crowd, strong pro-Billites, raised a cheer. This maddened Mike. He assumed the offensive. Bill, satisfied for the moment with his success, had stepped back, and was indulging in some fancy sparring, when Mike sprang upon him like a panther. They clinched, and Mike, 
who had got the undergrip, hurled Bill forcibly against a stout man who looked like a publican. The two fell in a heap, Bill underneath. At the same time, Bill's friends joined in. The first intimation Mike had of this was a violent blow across the shoulders with a walking stick. Even if he had been wearing his overcoat, the blow would have hurt. As he was in his jacket, it hurt more than anything he had ever experienced in his life. He leapt up with a yell, but Smith was there before him. Mike saw his assailant lift the stick again and then collapse as the old Etonian's right took him under the chin. He darted to Smith's side. This is no place for us, observed the latter sadly. Shift ho, I think. Come on. They dashed simultaneously for the spot where the crowd was thinnest. The ring which had formed round Mike and Bill had broken up as a result of the intervention of Bill's allies, and at the spot for which they ran only two men were standing, and these had apparently made up their minds that neutrality was the best policy, for they made no movement to stop them. Smith and Mike charged through the gap and raced for the road. The suddenness of the move gave them just the start they needed. Mike looked over his shoulder. The crowd, to a man, seemed to be following. Bill, excavated from beneath the publican, led the field. Lying a good second came a band of three, and after them the rest in a bunch. They reached the road in this order. Some fifty yards down the road was a stationary tram. In the ordinary course of things, it would probably have moved on long before Smith and Mike could have got to it. But the conductor, a man with sporting blood in him, seeing what appeared to be the finish of some marathon race, refrained from giving the signal and moved out into the road to observe events more clearly, at the same time calling to the driver who joined him. Passengers on the roof stood up to get a good view. There was some cheering. Smith and Mike reached the tram ten yards to the good, and if it had been ready to start then, all would have been well. But Bill and his friends had arrived while the driver and conductor were both out in the road. The affair now began to resemble the doings of Horatius on the bridge. Smith and Mike turned to bay on the platform at the foot of the tram steps. Bill, leading by three yards, sprang onto it, grabbed Mike, and fell with him onto the road. Smith, descending with a dignity somewhat lessened by the fact that his hat was on the side of his head, was in time to engage the runners-up. Smith, as pugilist, lacked something of the calm majesty which characterized him in the more peaceful moments of life, but he was undoubtedly effective. Nature had given him an enormous reach and a lightness on his feet remarkable in one of his size and at some time in his career he appeared to have learned how to use his hands. The first of the three runners, the walking-stick manipulator, had the misfortune to charge straight into the old Etonian's left. It was a well-timed blow, and the force of it, added to the speed at which the victim was running, sent him on to the pavement, where he spun round and sat down. In the subsequent proceedings he took no part. The other two attacked Smith simultaneously, one on each side. In doing so, the one on the left tripped over Mike and Bill, who were still in the process of sorting themselves out, and fell, leaving Smith free to attend to the other. He was a tall, weedy youth. His conspicuous features were a long nose and a light yellow waistcoat. Smith hit him on the former with his left and on the latter with his right. The long youth emitted a gurgle and collided with Bill, who had wrenched himself free from Mike and staggered to his feet. Bill, having received a second blow in the eye during the course of his interview on the road with Mike, was not feeling himself. Mistaking the other for an enemy, he proceeded to smite him in the parts about the jaw. He had just upset him when a stern official voice observed, eh, Now, what's all this? There is no more unfailing corrective to a scene of strife than the what's all this of the London policeman. Bill abandoned his attention of stamping on the prostrate one, and the latter, sitting up, blinked and was silent. "'What's all this?' asked the policeman again. Smith, adjusting his hat at the correct angle again, undertook the explanations. "'A distressing scene, officer,' he said. "'A case of that unbridled brawling. 
which is, alas, but too common in our London streets. These two, possibly till now the closest friends, fall out over some point, probably of the most trivial nature, and what happens? They brawl. They— "'He hit me!' said the long youth, dabbing at his face with a handkerchief, and pointing an accusing finger at Smith, who regarded him through his eyeglass with a look of which pity and censure were nicely blended. Bill, meanwhile, circling round restlessly, in the apparent hope of getting past the law, and having another encounter with Mike, expressed himself in a stream of language which drew stern reproof from the shocked constable. "'You, op it!' concluded the man in blue. "'That's what you do. You, op it!' "'I should,' said Smith kindly. "'The officer is speaking in your best interests. A man of taste and discernment, he knows what is best.' His advice is good, and should be followed. The constable seemed to notice Smith for the first time. He turned and stared at him. Smith's praise had not had the effect of softening him. His look was one of suspicion. "'And what might you have been up to?' he inquired coldly. "'This man says you hid him.' Smith waved the matter aside. "'Purely in self-defence,' he said. "'Purely in self-defence.' What else could a man of spirit do? A mere tap to discourage an aggressive movement. The policeman stood silent, weighing matters in the balance. He produced a notebook and sucked his pencil. Then he called the conductor of the tram as a witness. A brainy and admirable step, said Smith approvingly. This rugged, honest man, all unused to verbal subtleties, shall give us his plain account of what happened. After which, as I presume, this tram, little as I know of the habits of trams, has got to go somewhere today, I would suggest that we all separated and moved on. He took two half-crowns from his pocket and began to clink them meditatively together. A slight softening of the frigidity of the constable's manner became noticeable. There was a milder beam in the eyes which gazed into Smith's nor did the conductor seem altogether uninfluenced by the sight. The conductor deposed that he had been on the point of pushing on, seeing as how he'd hung a bart long enough, when he'd seen them two gents, the longen with the high glass, Smith bowed, and t'otheren, a legging of it, down the road towards him, with the other blokes pelting after him. He added that when they reached the trem, two gents had got aboard and was then set upon by the blokes, and after that he concluded, well, there was a bit of a scrap, and that's how it was. Lucidly and excellently put, said Smith. That is just how it was. Comrade Jackson, I fancy we leave the court without a stain on our characters. We win through. Uh, constable, we have given you a great deal of trouble— Possibly. Thank you, sir. There was a musical clinking. Now then, all of you, you op it. You're all been poking your noses in here long enough. Pop off. Get on with that tram, conductor. Smith and Mike settled themselves in a seat on the roof. When the conductor came along, Smith gave him half a crown, and asked after his wife and the little ones at home. The conductor thanked goodness that he was a bachelor, punched the tickets, and retired. Subject for a historical picture, said Smith. Wounded leaving the field after the Battle of Clapham Common. How are your injuries, Comrade Jackson? My back's hurting like blazes, said Mike. And my ears all sore where that chap got me. Anything the matter with you? Physically, said Smith. No. Spiritually much. Do you realise, Comrade Jackson, the thing that has happened? I am riding in a tram. I, Smith, have paid a penny for a ticket on a tram. If this should get about the clubs, I tell you, Comrade Jackson, no such crisis has ever occurred before in the course of my career. You can always get off, you know, said Mike. He thinks of everything, said Smith, admiringly. You have touched the spot with an unerring finger. Let us descend. I observe in the distance a cab. That looks to me more the sort of thing we want. Let us go and parley with the driver. 
Chapter 17 Sunday Supper The cab took them back to the flat, at considerable expense, and Smith requested Mike to make tea, a performance in which he himself was interested purely as a spectator. He had views on the subject of tea-making which he liked to expound from an armchair or sofa, but he never got further than this. Mike, his back throbbing dully from the blow he had received, and feeling more than a little sore all over, prepared the Etna, fetched the milk, and finally produced the finished article. Smith sipped meditatively. "'How pleasant,' he said, "'after strife is rest.' We shouldn't have appreciated this simple cup of tea had our sensibilities remained unstirred this afternoon. We can now sit at our ease like warriors after the fray, till the time come for setting out to Comrade Waller's once more. Mike looked up. What? You don't mean to say you're going to sweat out to Clapham again? Undoubtedly. Comrade Waller is expecting us to supper. What absolute rot! We can't fag back there. Noblesse oblige. The cry has gone round the Waller household. Jackson and Smith are coming to supper. And we cannot disappoint them now. Already the fatted blancmange has been killed, and the table creaks beneath what's left of the midday beef. We must be there. Besides, don't you want to see how the poor man is? Probably we shall find him in the act of emitting his last breath. I expect he was lynched by the enthusiastic mob. Not much, grinned Mike. They were too busy with us. All right, I'll come if you really want me to. But it's awful rot. One of the many things Mike could never understand in Smith was his fondness for getting into atmospheres that were not his own. He would go out of his way to do this. Mike, like most boys of his age, was never really happy and at his ease except in the presence of those of his own years and class. Smith, on the contrary, seemed to be bored by them and infinitely preferred talking to somebody who lived in quite another world. Mike was not a snob. He simply had not the ability to be at his ease with people in another class from his own. He did not know what to talk to them about, unless they were cricket professionals. With them he was never at a loss. But Smith was different. He could get on with anyone. He seemed to have the gift of entering into their minds and seeing things from their point of view. As regarded Mr. Waller, Mike liked him personally, and was prepared, as we have seen, to undertake considerable risk in his defence. But he loathed, with all his heart and soul, the idea of supper at his house. He knew that he would have nothing to say, whereas Smith gave him the impression of looking forward to the thing as a treat. The house where Mr. Waller lived was one of a row of semi-detached villas on the north side of the common. The door was opened to them by their host himself. So far from looking battered and emitting last breaths, he appeared particularly spruce. He had just returned from church, and was still wearing his gloves and tall hat. He squeaked with surprise when he saw who was standing on the mat. "'Hi, dear me, dear me,' he said. "'Here you are!' I have been wondering what had happened to you. I was afraid that you might have been seriously hurt. I was afraid those ruffians might have injured you. When last I saw you, you were being chivied, interposed Smith, with dignified melancholy. Do not let us try to wrap the fact up in pleasant words. We were being chivied. We were legging it with the infuriated mob at our heels, an ignominious position for a Shropshire Smith, but, after all, Napoleon did the same. But what happened? I could not see. I only know that quite suddenly the people seemed to stop listening to me, and all gathered round you and Jackson, and then I saw that Jackson was engaged in a fight with a young man. A comrade Jackson, I imagine, having heard a great deal about all men being equal, was anxious to test the theory and see whether Comrade Bill was as good a man as he was. The experiment was broken off prematurely, but I personally should be inclined to say that Comrade Jackson had a shade the better of the exchanges. Mr. Waller looked with interest at Mike, who shuffled and felt awkward. 
He was hoping that Smith would say nothing about the reason of his engaging Bill in combat. He had an uneasy feeling that Mr. Waller's gratitude would be effusive and overpowering, and he did not wish to pose as the brave young hero. There are moments when one does not feel equal to the role. Fortunately, before Mr. Waller had time to ask any further questions, the supper bell sounded and they went into the dining room. Sunday supper, unless done on a large and informal scale, is probably the most depressing meal in existence. And there is a chill discomfort in the round of beef, an icy severity about the open jam tart. The blancmange shivers miserably. Spirituous liquor helps to counteract the influence of these things, and so does exhilarating conversation. Unfortunately, at Mr. Waller's table, there was neither. The cashier's views on temperance were not merely for the platform. They extended to the home, and the company was not of the exhilarating sort. Besides Smith and Mike and their host, there were four people present. Comrade Preble, the orator, the young man of the name of Richards, Mr. Waller's niece, answering to the name of Ada, who was engaged to Mr. Richards, and Edward. Edward was Mr. Waller's son. He was ten years old, wore a very tight-eaten suit, and had the peculiarly loathsome expression which a snub nose sometimes gives to the young. It would have been plain to the most casual observer that Mr. Waller was fond and proud of his son. The cashier was a widower, and after five minutes' acquaintance with Edward, Mike felt strongly that Mrs. Waller was the lucky one. Edward sat next to Mike, and showed a tendency to concentrate his conversation on him. Smith, on the opposite end of the table, beamed in a fatherly manner upon the pair through his eyeglass. Mike got on with small girls reasonably well. He preferred them at a distance, but if cornered by them, could put up a fairly good show. Small boys, however, filled him with a sort of frozen horror. It was his view that a boy should not be exhibited publicly till he reached an age when he might be in the running for some sort of colours at a public school. Edward was one of those well-informed small boys. He opened on Mike with a first mouthful. "'Do you know the principal exports of Marseille?' he inquired. "'What?' said Mike coldly. "'Do you know the principal exports of Marseille? I do.' "'Oh,' said Mike. "'Yes, do you know the capital of Madagascar?' Mike, as crimson as the beef he was attacking, said he did not. "'I do.' "'Oh,' said Mike. "'Who was the first king?' "'You mustn't worry, Mr. Jackson, Teddy,' said Mr. Waller, with a touch of pride in his voice, as who should say, "'There are not many boys of his age, I can tell you, who could worry you with questions like that.' "'No, no, he likes it,' said Smith unnecessarily. "'He likes it. I always hold that much may be learned by casual chit-chat across the dinner-table. I owe much of my own grasp of—' "'I bet you don't know what's the capital of Madagascar.' "'interrupted Mike rudely. "'I do,' said Edward. "'I can tell you the kings of Israel,' he added, turning to Mike. "'He seemed to have no curiosity as to the extent of Smith's knowledge. "'Mike's appeared to fascinate him. "'Mike helped himself to beetroot in moody silence. "'His mouth was full when Comrade Preble asked him a question. "'Comrade Preble, as has been pointed out in an earlier part of the narrative— was a good chap, but had no roof to his mouth. "'I beg your pardon,' said Mike. Comrade Preble repeated his observation. Mike looked helplessly at Smith, but Smith's eyes were on his plate. Mike felt he must venture on some answer. "'No,' he said decidedly. Comrade Preble seemed slightly taken aback. There was an awkward pause. Then Mr. Waller— for whom his fellow socialists' methods of conversation held no mysteries, interpreted. The mustard, Preble, yes, yes. Would you mind passing Preble the mustard, Mr. Jackson? Oh, sorry, gasped Mike, and reaching out, upset the water jug into the open jam tart. 
Through the black mist which rose before his eyes as he leaped to his feet and stammered apologies, came the dispassionate voice of Master Edward Waller, reminding him that Mustard was first introduced into Peru by Cortez. His host was all courtesy and consideration. He passed the matter off genially. But life can never be quite the same. After you have upset a water jug into an open jam tart at the table of a comparative stranger, Mike's nerve had gone. He ate on, but he was a broken man. At the other end of the table, it became gradually apparent that things were not going on altogether as they should have done. There was a sort of bleakness in the atmosphere. Young Mr. Richards was looking like a stuffed fish, and the face of Mr. Waller's niece was cold and set. "'Why, come, come, Ada,' said Mr. Waller, breezily. "'What's the matter? You're eating nothing. What's George been saying to you?' he added jocularly. "'Thank you, Uncle Robert,' replied Ada precisely. "'There's nothing the matter. Nothing that Mr. Richards can say to me can upset me.' "'Mr. Richards!' echoed Mr. Waller in astonishment. How was he to know that during the walk back from church the world had been transformed, George had become Mr. Richards, and all was over? "'I assure you, Ada,' began that unfortunate young man. Ada turned a frigid shoulder towards him. "'Come, come,' said Mr. Waller, disturbed. "'What's all this? What's all this?' His niece burst into tears and left the room. If there is anything more embarrassing to a guest than a family row, we have yet to hear of it. Mike, scarlet to the extreme edges of his ears, concentrated himself on his plate. Comrade Preble made a great many remarks, which were probably illuminating if they could have been understood. Mr. Waller looked astonished at Mr. Richards. Mr. Richards, pink but dogged, loosened his collar, but said nothing. Smith, leaning forward, asked Master Edward Waller his opinion on the licensing bill. "'We happen to have a word or two, said Mr. Richards at length, "'on the way home from church on the subject of women's suffrage.' "'That fatal topic,' murmured Smith. "'In Australia,' began Master Edward Waller, "'I was rather, well, rather facetious about it,' continued Mr. Richards. Smith clicked his tongue sympathetically. "'In Australia,' said Edward, "'I went talking on, laughing and joking, "'when all of a sudden she flew out at me. "'How was I to know she was heart and soul in the movement? "'You never told me,' he added accusingly to his host. "'In Australia,' said Edward, "'I'll go and try and get her round. "'How was I to know?' "'Mr. Richards thrust back his chair "'and bounded from the room. "'Now, if what is your oiler?' "'said Comrade Preble judiciously, "'but was interrupted. "'How very disturbing,' said Mr. Waller. "'I am so sorry that this should have happened. "'Ada is such a touchy, sensitive girl. "'She, in Australia?' said Edward in even tones. "'They've got women's suffrage already. Did you know that?' he said to Mike. Mike made no answer. His eyes were fixed on his plate. A bead of perspiration began to roll down his forehead. If his feelings could have been ascertained at that moment, they would have been summed up in the words, "'Death, where is thy sting?' This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Smith in the City, Part 4 of 6, by P.G. Woodhouse. If you have enjoyed this book, feel free to visit our website at classictalesaudiobooks.com and sign up to be a financial supporter. Donate $5 a month and get a coupon code for $8 off any audiobook. And check out our free selections available to help assuage pandemic fatigue. 
Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. I came from a low-income family that was that was struggling. You see how hard life can get. GC became a part of my life because I don't want my family to fall back into that. I never thought education would take me this far. I'm still young. I still have a lot to do in my life and just want to get things done the way I want with a good education under me. I'm Stacy and Grand Canyon University helped me find my purpose.